Well, thank you very much, Pastor, for that kind introduction. And uh, it, I've had a great time. Spoke four times yesterday and uh, got to know a lot of people and feel very comfortable here. And I've had the joy of preaching first service on a different text. And I'm going to preach on now Luke, the 19th chapter, verses 1 through 10. And when you turn there, you'll find that it is a very, very uh, well-traveled story, but I think uh, you'll see it maybe in a little different light this morning. It's Luke, the 19th chapter, and it is a story. I've given it all kinds of titles, God's Sovereignty and Salvation, the Little Big Man, and other things. But it's Luke 19. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the famed Victorian preacher who preached morning and evening to a congregation, uh, without a microphone, by the way, morning and evening, to about 5,000 each time, also established a pastor's college, which exists to this day, Spurgeon College. And a famous feature of the college experience in his day was what they called the Question Oak uh, it's a large tree that was on the grounds of Spurgeon's home. And on Friday afternoons, he would invite the, fa- the uh, students of the college out. They would sit under the tree with Spurgeon presiding. And then he would ask them to give extemporaneous sermons. I mean, like, here's your text, get up and preach it. You know, no time to think. So on one occasion, they're gathered under the tree... And uh, Spurgeon's there, and he points to one of the students and assigned him this passage, the message on Zacchaeus. You can imagine how he felt. So the guy gets up, walks around to the lectern that's got set up under the tree, and he said, um, Zacchaeus was of little stature, and so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree. And so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and so will I. And he went and sat down. And uh, Spurgeon led the applause. He thought that was absolutely great. And the Zacchaeus escapade makes a fun story. The idea of a tiny little man perched up like a bird in a tree and found out is the stuff of children's songs. And how does it go? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And there is great humor here. You'll you'll see a little bit of it as you go through the story, but here's the thing you want to see is the story occupies a very serious place in Luke's account of Jesus' life. And if you look at it, you'll see, you look right across the page, It is Jesus' very last personal encounter before his arrival in Jerusalem and the events leading to his death. All that remains is the telling of the parable of the ten minas, and then, you'll notice, you have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So it has a very important place in the Gospel of Luke. You want to note that. And significantly, the final line of Zacchaeus' story gives a summary line of the purpose of Jesus' ministry at the very end of the road. You see it in verse 10? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So 
saving the lost is what Jesus is all about at the end of his ministry as he goes in to give his life. And in this respect, the salvation of Zacchaeus has telling spiritual connections to its context, the two events that precede it. You'll notice that you have the healing of the blind beggar, and its connection to the healing of the blind beggar is obvious because of the, there is the deliverance of a man who's hopelessly lost in blindness and poverty, and now it corresponds to the deliverance of a man hopelessly lost in wealth and corruption. And then its connection to the story before that of the rich young ruler is also very clear because what is stated as humanly impossible, namely the salvation of a rich man, you see it in verse 25 of chapter 18. Put your eyes on that. Where Jesus says of, of the rich young man when he challenged him to, to sell all and follow him, and he didn't do it, Jesus says in verse 25 of chapter 18, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Basically, he says it's impossible. But this impossible possibility now takes place in the salvation of rich little Zacchaeus. In fact, it is the account of how the impossible takes place. You could call it God's sovereignty and salvation, as you'll see it as you come to the end. It is about the very power of the gospel. And is it ever. Now, from a tax-collecting perspective, this grasping little man, Zacchaeus, had it made. Taxes were collected in... <clears throat> In, in three places in the Holy Land in those days, they were collected at Capernaum, which is at the top of the lake. They were collected in Jordan at the bottom of the lake, the ford of Jordan. Uh, and then they were collected in Jerusalem. And he had one of the three great tax franchises, Jericho, at the ford of the Jordan. And as chief tax collector, he was the head of a tax-gathering franchise with collectors who then extorted the people and then paid him, Zacchaeus, before he paid the Romans. So he's basically the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. He, he, he's, he matches it with the scruples of a Don Escobar. This is not a good guy. And bottom line... He is filthy rich in the fullest sense of the word filthy. He's not a likely candidate for the kingdom. And of course, this little guy is hated. In the eyes of the countrymen, his littleness is more than physical. He is a zero. His pathetic lowliness. And some of the locals, no doubt, would like to see if they could put him through the eye of a needle, literally, as C.S. Lewis says, squeezed out in one long, bloody thread from tail to snout. No one would have guessed on that day that 
that Zacchaeus was a candidate for the kingdom or that he even wanted to see Jesus. But you see that opening line in verse 3 that Luke says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. You say, why? Why would this filthy, rich little man who's sitting on top of all of this want to see Jesus? Why would he want to? Well, perhaps... And this is very likely he heard of the conversion of Levi, the tax collector, St. Matthew, who would write the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, Palestine's a small little place. It's not very big. Uh, uh, And tax collectors would have um, had sort of a sleazy fellowship. You know, they'd get together and hang together, the fellowship of the scum, not the fellowship of the rings, but the scum. And because Jesus had ministered to Levi and others of Levi's ilk, he'd irked the religious establishment and was known, this is a quotation about Jesus, as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Zacchaeus says that this this rabbi who's getting all his attention evidently has a soft place for people like him. So I think that may be one of the reasons. Now, I think from human experience, one of the other reasons is that he found his wealth to not be fully satisfying. A sense of disease had invaded his pleasures. Nothing, nothing fulfilled him. Nothing lasted. I mean, that's very, very true with people that come to Christ. I mean, that lack of satisfaction is what drew St. Augustine to Christ. As he wrote in retrospect, St. Augustine, speaking to God, he says, You were always present, God, angry and merciful at once, strewing the pangs of bitterness over all my lawless pleasures to lead me on to look for others that didn't have any pain. And again, he says to God, Your goad stick was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could, could discern you without mistake. I mean, that's been, that's the way it is. Marie Antoinette had a great line, not let them eat cake. You know what she said? Nothing tastes. Very, very interesting about dissatisfaction. So like Augustine, Zacchaeus was drawn by the severe mercy of dissatisfaction. He knew about Jesus interacting with tax collectors. He likely, for this reason, had dissatisfaction. And then probably was weary of just being hated. He is a Hebrew. He is a Jew. And he gave as good as he got. But it was miserable. And the relentless contempt of his people was wearing, and he was desolate and alone. Thus, for these and possibly other reasons, this restless little man determined to see who Jesus was. But alas, verse 3 again, on account of the crowd, he could not because he was of small stature. I think about him coming up and trying to 
to get where he can see Jesus, and the crowd is lined up, and there's little Zacchaeus, and the pleasure that maybe some of the populace had a kind of closing ranks on him, you know, stepping back on his foot, you know. Oh, that's your foot? Well, short people have no... No, I don't know if they said that, but... <laughs> short or not, Zacchaeus had legs, and he used them. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he, Jesus, was about to pass that way. To be specific, the tree here, if you were into horticulture, was a ficus sycamorous. That is a sturdy tree that could grow about 40 feet high with a short trunk. Just the kind of tree that Zacchaeus, it was his kind of tree. All the uh, kind of humor aside of this little guy scrambling up the tree, a tiny rejected man sitting alone, hidden up in the leaves to get a glimpse of Jesus is very touching. He didn't want the crowd to know he was there. And if you stop and think about it, seeing just seeing, just seeing Jesus pass by wouldn't change the situation. He'd get a private view. The crowd would pass. He'd remain unseen, sort of like an orphan uh, appearing in the dark through a lighted window on a dark night. But a geological shift is taking place in his soul. You see all that, uh, that, that initiative. And that interior-driven initiative of Zacchaeus, then, in the story, is matched by an exterior initiative by Christ himself. Look at verse 5. So, when Zacchaeus came to the place, he looked up. Excuse me, when Jesus, I better get that straight. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and he received him joyfully. You know, as the song goes, and as the Savior passed his way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Let's step back for a moment. When Jesus stopped under the sycamore tree, hidden Zacchaeus would have naturally tensed. And then as Jesus raised his gaze, I think he would have started to be filled with <clears throat> a little terror, maybe a quick sweat. And then absolute terror gripped his soul as Jesus lifted his eyes and saw him. And, and Zacchaeus would have braced for further ridicule, especially as Jesus called his name. He knew his name. This is also beautiful because in Jesus' use of Zacchaeus' name, there's a hit of grace. At least the biblically informed readers see it because... The same all-knowing eyes at the beginning of Jesus' ministry had seen 
In John, the second chapter, Nathaniel under the tree, and he discerned Nathaniel's guileless spirit, and he called him. Now he sees Zacchaeus up a tree, and he knows the iniquity of his soul, and he calls him. So what you have to understand is that there is supernatural knowledge here. And then, as Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home, he didn't say, uh, Zacchaeus, uh, got any room in your home? Um, I'd like to stay at your house. Notice what Jesus says. I must stay. You see, God's at work because Jesus Christ regarded his encounter with Zacchaeus as his divine mission. And his seeking of Zacchaeus was a work of sovereign grace. Divine fingerprints are all over this, as you're going to see. So what we begin to see at this point in the story is Zacchaeus seeking of Jesus and Jesus seeking of Zacchaeus are both a sovereign work of God and the crossing of their lives at that sycamore tree was set before the foundation of the world. Read Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. And guess what? The camel is about to go through the eye of the needle. Well, Luke says, verse 6, So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. That, that, that uh, glad descent from the tree, probably with a few twigs falling and leaves floating down, would have indicated his eagerness to the bystanders and, and to Zacchaeus for what he'd all been dimly wishing for. And as you look at the story from here on, apart from the crowds muttering, grumbling, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner, there's only joy. Zacchaeus' joy and Jesus' joy. And to the onlooking crowd's amazement, off strode Jesus with a half-pint kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel scurrying along on his busy little legs. And... Jesus and his disciples would spend the night there according to Hebrew custom. And sometime during that stay, sometime during that night, after probably much discussion and prayer and soul probing and reciting the scriptures, a little big man would formally stand and declare for all Jericho to hear. Verse 8, Behold, Lord! The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I mean, for starters, he gave away half of everything to the poor. This rich man gave away half of everything. And then for the remaining 50%, he pledged to make restitutions four times the amount of what he extorted. And let me tell you that if, when he says, if I have defrauded anyone, implies that he had cheated many people. So he basically put his entire fortune at jeopardy after meeting Jesus. In effect, he lived out the command that had earlier caused the rich ruler so much grief, um, 
in 18, verse 22. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So Zacchaeus is walking through the eye of the needle, and he's living to tell about it. A little man has become huge. That compulsive drive to make money and then hang on to it was gone. That's a fact. He no longer needed his wealth. He went into the house with Jesus mastered by a passion to get, and he left mastered by a passion to give. He went in the littlest man in Jericho and he left the biggest man in town. Something, it happened inside that house. And we don't have to guess what it is because you have a divine declaration in verse 9. Jesus said to him, salvation has come to this house because he, that is Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham. The answer is that Zacchaeus had been regenerated. Saved. And that liberating joy of salvation was coursing through his soul. Uh, he was a descendant of Abraham. But now he's a true son of Abraham. Because he shared that saving faith in Abraham. Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness. He believed. And then he participated in works that come out of believing faith in his generosity. And what had happened is inside that house, he had met what, um, what Dr. Luke in Luke 169 referred to as Jesus as the horn of salvation, an image of mighty power, uh, of a, a great beast, an animal tossing his horns in battle. He had met the horn of salvation in Jesus who would give the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, and Zacchaeus was a new man. That was the answer. Salvation had come to his house. And that is why he gave his fortune. Now, we're going to just stop. Uh, we're not going to stop. We're going to pause in the narrative here to say that nonbelievers are quick to criticize the gospel as sentimental, unpractical, and they use a number of adjectives today. I'm talking about popular culture, uh, late-night talk shows, and so on. The kinds of things that are referred to Christianity and believers in the gospel and the Bible as. But if it is impractical, it is uh, our fault, not the gospel. Because... The demands of the gospel are intensely practical, and they include, listen to this, when you come to Jesus, a reorientation of your attachment to wealth, your possessions. It, it loosens your grip on those things. And Luke's gospel is so fascinating. I want you to kind of walk through this with me, because this is a theology from Luke's gospel about these things. In chapter 6, verse 24, you might look at that or just note it. 
Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your consolation. That is, in 624, Jesus pronounces a woe on the rich because in their self-sufficiency, in their self-sufficiency that comes from having wealth, they're the opposite of those to whom he came to preach the gospel. Because at the onset of his ministry, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61.1, and this is in Luke 4.18, make a note of that, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's who the gospel goes to. And then turn to chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, where you have these solemn words to everybody who trusts in riches. It's the, the guy who'd built all the barns and said he's self-satisfied. Verses 20 and 21, but God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, a while back I heard one of those little haiku poems, you know, just a few words. This is incredible. It goes like this. Last night my barn burned down. Now I can see the moon. You know, it clarifies everything. And then in 1613, turn over there, Jesus says about, says, gives this spiritual axiom. No servant can serve two masters, 1613, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, despise the other, and then the great axiom, you cannot serve both God and money. And then you go to chapter 18. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus' response to the rich ruler. Verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying over and over and over again in the gospel of Luke as he's giving it that it is useless to talk about loving him and trusting him and having a sweet assurance forgiveness and the glorious hope of heaven unless it makes a difference in our material attachments. It doesn't say you have to give away everything. But strong emotion, sweet feelings, confidence and forgiveness are all very nice if they open our hands. Uh, Jesus is not saying that generosity is a means of redemption. But he says it's evidence of redemption. So I like to say there are no Christian Scrooges. And if you're a Scrooge, well, you apply it. And, and I think that, uh, that you have to see, if you're, if you're a new Christian and you're growing, that generosity and giving is a pillar of discipleship. Nobody's truly discipled who hasn't become generous. And the faithful church will proclaim this not because the church wants money, but to truly serve its people. Zacchaeus, 
was like this because he'd been saved. He was enlarged. He was a big man because the gospel makes little men and women big. Well, as we mentioned, the account ends with that great summary of Christ's mission, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's step back from this. Humanly, Zacchaeus is beyond salvation. And you'd have felt that way if you lived in Jericho. You'd have probably written him off. Look, he turned his back on God's word. He was the perpetrator of Roman oppression, extorting his people for the Romans and for himself. The guy was not only turned his back on God's word, he was a traitor. He made his money off the backs of his own people like a little pimp. He loved money beyond all things. His tax cartel was the cause of so much injustice. He was the smallest, meanest, baddest man in town. Impossible. Except for one thing, and you see it in the text here. He was sought by, do you see it, the Son of Man? Do you see the capital S on Son? That is Jesus Christ's self-chosen designation taken from Daniel 7, 13, and 14 where you have the vision to whom the Ancient of Days has given the Son of Man all dominion and all authority. That's the Son of Man, the awesome Son of Man, the awesome God. The Son of Man also is a kind of a double entendre because it, it hints at the Incarnation. Jesus is the transcendent Son of Man, the God-Man, co-eternal with the Ancient of Days. And this transcendent God-Man who sought Zacchaeus did the impossible so that camel-brained, donkey-souled Zacchaeus passed through the eye of a needle not as a long, bloody thread from tail to snout, but completely whole, because of the blood of Christ. You step back, you see the story. Salvation had come to Zacchaeus because he was sought out. No other way. It was God who prompted that interior seeking, that geological shift in his soul. St. Augustine said of God another place, you follow close behind the fugitive and call us to yourself in ways we cannot understand. That's the kind of thinking behind Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven. God makes us hungry. God causes us to search. And it was God who arranged the exterior seeking when they crossed under the fig tree. Listen, Zacchaeus was caught because in his seeking he was sovereignly sought. I sought the Lord, 
And afterward, I knew. He moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by you. So beautiful. Well, if God is seeking you, then you know an interior dis-ease. Nothing really satisfies. Uh, if you're being sought, you're really never completely comfortable anymore because you lack wholeness. You lack shalom. You lack a clear conscience. You lack peace. That's hard. Lewis has a great quote. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. And if you have this, this sense of this need and disease, disease and a sense of uh, guilt and a lack of wholeness and a lack of peace, then this morning, by virtue of your sitting under this story from this word, you're under the sycamore tree. And he's saying to you, Ethel, Martha, John, Amos, come down. I want to dine with you. I want your soul. I sought you. I'm seeking you. And I am the Son of Man, God. Awesome, sovereign God, I died for you. And as yesterday, as we talked about, I did the hardest thing in the universe for you to forgive you. Come down. But you say, I'm too small. I'm too shriveled. If you knew my self-centered, imploded heart, and you knew my history, you wouldn't say that. And he says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a big heart, a new heart, come down. And the question is, will you come? I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of you. It is all of God. All of God, and you will sing his praises for all eternity. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that your powerful, spirit-breathed word would do its work and that you would save some souls this morning, some young souls, some old souls, save some impossible souls by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.